Daniel, we turn this morning to the second chapter, which if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you is on page 737, 737, Daniel chapter 2. And uh, in case you haven't uh, noticed yet, uh, life in this world is one wild ride full of twists and turns, often bizarre and out of the blue, of surprises, both good and bad, of elation and devastation, of promotion and demotion, of betrayal and disappointment, of dangers, toils, and snares. No one knew that fact better than Daniel and his friends. You know it too, don't you? Or if you don't know it, you soon will know it by experience. So how shall we respond? How then shall we live, to borrow a phrase from Francis Schaeffer? How shall we survive in a topsy-turvy world that is no friend to faith? Well, Daniel knew that, too, as did his friends, and so shall we anew by the time we're finished this morning. To Daniel chapter 2, after we pray. Father in heaven, how often in Scripture did not your people plead for wisdom? This chapter included. And it's been your pleasure when your people asked for wisdom, to give them wisdom. And your promise to give them wisdom when they seek it. And it's also been the pattern of your wonderful kindness that when they've sought wisdom, you've given them so much more on top of it. Father, we have this simple request. Make us wise from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 24. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and by the way, a very large portion of Daniel at this point is in Aramaic. The next several chapters switch to Aramaic, and then the end of Daniel back to Hebrew. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation. You shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me 
the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he may show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God, the the God of heaven, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and you have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. One of you recently brought to my attention the famous classic Betty Davis movie line. Standing at the foot of 
a stairwell, surveying the room full of people with those steely, cold, and mysterious eyes of hers. She snarls, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Well, that's exactly what it had been for Nebuchadnezzar. One very bumpy night. The tyrant had suffered bad dreams, deeply disturbing dreams, dreams that left his sleep-deprived fingers trembling as he tried to button his shirt the next morning, so to speak. But when the tyrants have bad dreams, it's everybody else who has to fasten their seatbelts. If it had been a bumpy night for him, it was going to prove a much bumpier day for them. As was the custom in those days when the king had bad dreams, he summoned the wise men, men skilled in navigating the books upon books upon books of the magician's library of omens and signs until a suitable interpretation could be conjured from those lines. Why Daniel and his companions were not among those first called to the scene, to the throne room, were not told, even though this king has recently found them, Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom, they were conspicuously absent from this first group. We don't know why. Maybe it was because they were still pretty low on the totem pole, perhaps. They hadn't gained much seniority among the wise men, having just recently graduated from the Babylonian University. You know, the ink still wet on their diplomas. But their absence... Uh, did not, however, as we've just read, gain them exemption. It did not make them exempt from the penalty, from the wild and bumpy ride. When the king throws a curveball at the wise men of Babylon, demanding that they not only interpret his dream, but tell him the dream first so as to prove that they are actually the wise men they claim to be, Of course, the wise men are utterly flabbergasted and not a little bit irritated. Anyone can interpret a dream, right? Anyone can interpret a dream, but who in the world can tell the king what he dreamed? The answer, of course, is no one. Only the gods could do such a thing, they said in verse 11, a statement more theologically correct than even they recognized as it came off of their tongues, and a point that would soon enough be proven true. But this failure of theirs earns for them, and not only for them, but for the whole group of wise men, for all the wise men in Babylon, including Daniel and his friends, a terrible sentence. Death. And death in a terrible way. I want to stop there and draw this lesson for us, dear flock, before we go on to see how Daniel responds. It may seem like sort of an obvious lesson to you, uh, but it's worth pointing out. And it is this. Brothers and sisters, this is a dangerous place. The world is a dangerous place for Christians. 
It is a dangerous and hostile place, brutal and unpredictable. I say it's worth pointing out because sometimes we forget this fact of life. Especially we who live in the formerly Christian West. And forgetfulness of this dismal truth may lead us into danger or create in us undue disappointment or even dejection of spirit. We're living right now. We're living on the leftover vestiges of a biblical world and life view where freedom, even if thoroughly misunderstood and misused, continues. Where manners, even if ill-motivated, continue to be exercised. Where people are still nice to one another, even if they don't know exactly why. So we're sometimes lulled, aren't we, into forgetting that the fact that behind the thin veneer that covers the uh, covers outwardly people who have not the holy spirit in their hearts that behind that veneer i say lies a monstrously wicked heart of stone as the prophets described it now of course not all unbelievers live out, or as the modern lingo has it, act out all that is in their hearts all the time. If they did, we wouldn't be able to step out the front door of our houses. Even wicked Nebuchadnezzar didn't always, every day, live up to his full wicked potential. Else the magicians would not have been surprised that day to find him so unreasonable him or the outrageous penalty imposed on their failure to deliver. Not every night nor every day was equally bumpy in Babylon. Babylon was prosperous. Babylon was rich. It was a nice place to live for most of the people most of the time. But behind all of the glitz and glamour lurked a dark, dark evil, brutality. Even America is a nice place to live. It's prosperous. We're rich here. It's a rich place. We enjoy a lot of peace with our neighbors. I mean, within our nation. But congregation, remember this. We live shoulder to shoulder here with wolves often, usually, dressed in sheep's clothing. Sometimes the world, the the wolves that is, treat us Christians with great respect. After all, in as much as we serve God and not men in our labor, and to the extent that we do so, we make very good employees, very good co-workers, and even bosses. We're sometimes promoted and recognized and praised for our hard work and for the talents and for the blessings and success that God has given us and added to our endeavors. As Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego serve God 
And we're blessed in the process. Even wicked Nebuchadnezzar could see that as that they stood head and shoulders above all of their peers and therefore promoted them. But that did not make him their friend. That didn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar was, after all, a pretty good person. It didn't take very long for Nebuchadnezzar to show his true colors. All that he had given them, the promotions, the, the, the recognition, the favor, all of it was now in jeopardy. They themselves were to be reduced under Nebuchadnezzar's decree, according to one translation, to mere body parts. Are we surprised? Really? Christians, you are living in Babylon. You should not be surprised when people who are kind to you now, who seem to be your friends, who trust you and whom you trust today, turn and rend you tomorrow. happens every day. Unbelieving, unconverted co-workers and bosses can turn on you in an instant. They'll pat you on the back one day and they'll throw you under the bus the next. But why should that surprise us? Which is the real person I mean deep down in the depths of their hearts. If they have not the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, ruling in them, then who are they? Well, what else can they be without the Holy Spirit? If they're not the children of God, then they're the children of the devil. Those are the only two choices that the Bible gives us. Maybe you've heard the saying that while he was patting you on the back, he was looking for the place to insert the knife. Well, maybe that's a jaded way to put it, and it certainly represents an overly simplistic assessment of the behavior of unbelievers. But consider this. Think about this. What does lie behind every act of an unconverted person, of a Christless person. What is the motivation in the heart of hearts of those people, whether they're your boss or your coworker or your neighbor or family member or even your friend? However friendly a friend, what is at the bottom of their hearts? For the person who is filled with the Holy Spirit, the deepest motive of the heart is the love of God and the glory of God. Now, we don't always live that out very well, do we? But it is fundamentally what is at the bottom of the heart where the Holy Spirit lives. 
What is at the fundamental rock bottom of the heart of people without the Holy Spirit? What is their motive? What can it be? The person without the Spirit of God, Paul writes to the Corinthians, can't even understand the things of the Spirit. Now, thankfully, we live in a world that is governed by our Heavenly Father. So that even the evil hearts of the wolves around you are not allowed full reign. God restrains the wolves even as he sends us into their midst as sheep. But don't be surprised when the wolves act like the wolves that they are. And that lead to some bumpy roads, some bumpy nights, and some bumpy days for you. Fasten your seatbelts. But what is a seatbelt for the Christian? Well, just this, and it's the second point this morning. Christians in this bumpy road of a hostile, unpredictable, even brutal world, we must fasten the seatbelt of prayer. We must fasten the seatbelt of prayer and not just prayer, joint prayer. Not just our own prayer, but the prayers of our brothers and of our sisters together with us. What did Daniel do when the threat arose? Now, before you answer that, before you answer that, first answer this question. What are you tempted to do when a threat or a crisis arises in your life, when the road gets bumpy, when wolves show themselves to be wolves, what are you tempted to do? Well, let me just be completely honest with you and say, this is what I am tempted to do. I am tempted to start working Start planning, start formulating, start scheming, start calling, start writing, start agitating. Far too easily I can see myself in Daniel's place knowing that if I didn't come up with the king's interpretation, let alone the king's dream, that I would be torn limb from limb. I would start by calling a meeting too. But this is how my meeting would sound. Okay, Hananiah, I want you to start poking around the king's chambermaids. Start asking questions. Ask if anybody heard what the king was saying in his sleep Tuesday night. Did any of them happen to pass by the king's bedroom? Anything at all. What did he mumble as he tossed and turned? Mishael, you go talk to the king's valet. And you see what kind of clues you can get from him. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar was saying something while he was getting dressed. And we could start piecing things together. Azariah... You go talk to the butler and you find out what Nebuchadnezzar was mumbling about as he was cracking open his hard-boiled egg at the breakfast table Tuesday morning. Then come back and report here, right? The first thing we do in a crisis, get to work, get moving, call a meeting if need be, make a game plan, get things rolling. 
What does Daniel do? He calls a meeting. Yes. But not for planning. And not for plotting. But for praying. He calls a prayer meeting. And the effectual, fervent prayer of these righteous men prevailed. They were in desperate need. In this particular case, what did they need particularly so desperately? They needed wisdom. And what does the scripture say? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Pray. That's what prayer is. It's it's just simply speaking to God. That's all prayer is. Please don't make this complicated. Prayer is just talking to God. Looking to God. Turning to God. And the scripture says, it will be given him. Now I hesitated at first about carrying this metaphor this far. Comparing prayer and seatbelts. But the more I thought about it, the more similarities I saw between them. Prayer and seatbelts are a lot alike in many ways. They're always available, right? They're always available right there when you get in the car in particular. But here's the thing. You've got to use it, right? You've got to use it. Seatbelts don't buckle themselves, and prayers don't pray themselves. You are, what is more, not forced to use either one of them. You are totally free to engage them or to leave them alone. But leaving them alone, commonly these two, can have deadly results. Particularly when the road is bumpy. Several years ago, one of our young neighbors, a teenage girl who loved her car, was often out washing it tenderly in the driveway, suddenly disappeared. A few days later, we found out where she had gone when we picked up a newspaper that was a few days old by that time. She had lost control of her beloved car out on the 60, what was then called the 60 bypass. When it rolled, she was ejected from the car through the window and died. You know of whom I speak because you see her face to this day around town on billboards. Right now she's adorning 18th Street. Signs urging people to use their seatbelts. The implication, of course, is that had she been wearing hers... She would not have died. She'd still be alive today. Well, think about Daniel and his friends and turn things around just a little bit. What if they had not prayed? Go down that road for a minute. What what if they had not prayed? If they had not prayed, the book of Daniel would be much shorter today. It would consist of two short chapters. 
And I can tell you how it would have ended. Here are the words. And Arioch tore Daniel and his companions and all the wise men of Babylon limb from limb, just as Nebuchadnezzar had commanded him. But that's not how Daniel ends, is it? Why? For one very simple reason. They prayed. We don't have the prayer here, do we? Isn't that interesting? The Bible doesn't tell us what they prayed. Wouldn't it have been wonderful to know the words? What, what, what did you guys pray? I really want to know. I'm going to ask them. Why don't you, maybe you'll beat me to them in heaven. Ask them. What, what were the words of that prayer anyway when you see them? But what we do have here is the evidence of their prayers, which, of course, is their praises. Their praises for answered prayer. As the good Bishop Taylor Smith put it, prayer and praises go in pairs. They have praises who have prayers. They have praises who have prayers. Daniel and his friends had praises because they had prayers. What about you? Do you have praises? Do you have things for which you thank the Lord and praise the Lord? Or do you wonder why it is that others in your church have so many praises while you have so little for which to praise God? So few successes, so few evidences of God at work in your life. And you can rattle off, and often you do, long lists of failures and disappointments and defeats instead. There may be a very simple reason, a very simple answer for you in the book of James. It is this. You have not, because you ask not. Prayer is like a seatbelt. It's only effective if you use it. Or to put it another way, it is the instrument that God uses, really, to bless. The hymn writer Joseph Hart has these lines. Prayer is appointed to convey the blessings God intends to give. Don't you love that line? Prayer is appointed to convey the blessings God intends to give. It isn't enough, Christians. It's not nearly enough to know that your blessings come from God. Our Christian faith requires that we receive them from our Heavenly Father's hands precisely because we asked for them. When Martin Luther said during the bumpy, bumpy days of the Reformation, I mean wolves and sheep, they were after his life. Martin Luther said during those days of the Reformation, he said, prayer must do the 
deed. What he meant is that we must trust God to do the deed and in faith ask him to do the deed and then wait upon his help and his blessing. And what is true of the Reformation is just as true of every part of our Christian lives today. Prayer must do the deed. True prayer will do the deed. That is because humble faith in the Lord and loving communion with our Heavenly Father in prayer are the essence of the Christian life. The wolves of the world are prowling about like their father, the devil, seeking sheep to devour on this bumpy road of life. So how are you a sheep, a lamb of God to stay safe? By staying very close to your shepherd. And how does the sheep do this? She does it by prayer. By speaking to God. By seeking him. By making her request known to him. But you say, you you don't know exactly what to say. What, What do I say to the Lord? But you do. You know exactly what to say to the Lord. Since we've already sung a hymn by Cooper this morning, and we're going in a few minutes to be singing another one by Cooper, why not some more Cooper right in the middle? Have you no words? Ah, think again. Words flow apace when you complain. And fill your fellow creature's ear with the sad tale of all your care. Were half the breath thus vainly spent to heaven in supplication sent? Your cheerful song would oftener be, Hear what the Lord has done for me. Amen.